Welcome to Paper Boys, the weekly podcast where we unravel the research papers behind major headline science news. I'm James. And I'm Charlie. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. For those of you who do not know, Charlie and I have both finished internships, so this is our first time recording together in the same room after nearly three months. So. I can see James's beautiful face, and it is a sight to behold. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. For those of you listening, only wish you could share in the experience. We've actually been counting down the days until this day when we could finally record an episode together again. I had one of those like big calendars on my wall and a red marker, and I made an X on every day like they do in cartoons. That's pretty creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a picture of you right next to it. Oh, God. <laughs> with some candles. <laughs> like, and a Ouija a, board. A lock of hair. Uh, I will say I'm... I missed my old, the cat I lived with for three months. That's true. Uh, Anyone who's been listening the last couple, you may have caught the excessive meowing in the background. A couple meows. <laughs> so James, what paper did you bring in today? So today's paper came in on a recommendation from John Darnall, a listener in Oregon. So shout out to John. Thanks for this recommendation. This paper is about criticality between cortical states. They sort of examine the human brain the way you would look at these very complex features like the analogy they use is stacking grains of sand until they collapse in this sort of unstructured free fall avalanche so i'll uh that's kind of how my thoughts feel sometimes yeah that was how my brain felt reading it but it was i think we got to some of the core facts so i'm excited to share it okay cool well i have not read this paper and so i'm looking forward to hearing about it and kind of figuring out maybe cracking the code here a little bit it sounds like it was pretty dense but we'll figure it out we'll figure it out yeah for those of you who are unfamiliar charlie and myself are both phd students who read a lot of papers for our own research in graduate school so we started this podcast as a way to share our love for learning about new science with anyone who's interested at all uh anyone else who also wants to learn about new science <laughs> yeah yeah in short we are the paper boys Uh, before we get started, we want to say thank you to everyone who has listened, is still listening, or is just starting to listen for the first time. If you aren't already, please do follow us on social media. Our handle is at PaperboysPod. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Or if you have any other thoughts and want to contact us directly, shoot us a message, paperboyspod at gmail.com. We love getting fan email. Yeah, that's how we heard about this episode today. We also, exciting news as of last week, we launched a Patreon account, um, so you can go check that out. I believe our lowest tier is Pi, $3.14, and that gets you a bonus episode every month. James and I are going to be covering the paper that James seems to work into the discussion on every episode, <laughs> which is Sir Arthur Eddington's proof of the theory of relativity through experimental means. Yeah, this, to be fair... It was very relevant to like the last eight podcast episodes that we did. It's always relevant. But so James and I will have a bonus episode that you can get on our Patreon. We're going to be a couple beers deep and talking about the way the silly ways that they did science back in the day. So back in the day, exactly 100 years ago. That's right. Exactly so 100 years ago. Celebrate with us. Pie dollars per month. <laughs> yeah, pie uh, dollars. And that's at uh, patreon.com slash paperboyspod. 
all the proceeds do just help us actually support the podcast. They go to hosting fees and equipment. Charlie and I love doing this podcast just on its own. But we're also broke grad students. So it helps. Yeah, it helps. Help. It helps. So James, this uh, story about criticality in the brain and sand and stuff, I don't know. I, I didn't really even understand your short description. So you're going to have to start me start me off easy here. Well, let me prepare you by telling you to prepare yourself for some uh, <laughs> many different analogies with different fine-grained materials. Sand, snow, mostly just sand and snow. Actually. Granola. Granola, yeah. Chia seeds. Mm, okay. I'm just getting hungry now. The uh, scientific chia seed stack <laughs> always makes headlines. So yeah. what, what did you actually see? What was coming up in the news that turned your attention to this? Well, besides you know, John Darnall sending us this article. Yeah, so John uh, brought this up and he forwarded us he forwarded us an article from the website Ars Technica, which does a lot of science publication articles. Their headline was Rat Brains Provide Even More Evidence Our Brains Operate Near Tipping Point. Rat brains, okay. Is this yes. like that mutant rat <laughs> episode that we had? Uh are these mutant rats is what I'm asking? No, no mutants were harmed in the making of this research. Wow, just normal rats, okay. Just normal rats. Uh, and actually, it's interesting looking just at the URL for the website. Their uh, URL name is, does the human brain teeter on the edge of chaos? Rat brains point to yes. Ooh, like uh, I said, that's how I feel most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> Teetering on the edge of chaos. Uh, Quanta Magazine had an article with the title, it's actually not that different. Do brains operate at a tipping point? New clues and complications. Mm. Always so, complicated. So what is the actual paper this is all based on? Like where was this published and who wrote it? So the actual paper is called Criticality Between Cortical States. When I said the paper is about criticality between cortical states, I literally <laughs> meant that is what the title is. Okay. Um, this was recently published in June this year in Physical Review Letters in the Physics section. Okay. This is like a it's very esteemed journal. I'm, I know that's a journal that I know from the plasma physics world. And so I'm very interested that there's like a physics paper about the brain. That sounds like this sounds like I'm already getting the sense of why this is a hard paper to read. Yeah, it's interesting. When I started grad school three years ago, I started interacting with a lot of people from physics who do neuroscience research. Mm. Uh, one of the main principal investigators we were working with in my lab has a physics background, like particle physics, and then got into neuroscience and brain plasticity. And the university of particle physics wasn't challenging enough. Yeah, it just, just needed that. I had extra. to go a little harder, you know. Just. It's interesting. University of Washington also has a biophysics department, Department of Biophysics and Physiology. Interesting. Okay. So apparently it's not that uncommon. Okay. Good to know. And the first author was Antonio J. Fontanelli. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. He's from the physics department of the Federal University of Pernambuco in Recife, Brazil. Uh, several other authors from Brazil, Portugal, and Spain. Okay. I am just wondering, what does like this idea of a tipping point even mean? And like, what is criticality? Can you can you give me like the, I don't know. Yeah. Like the Wikipedia plain English version before we dive too deep. So yeah, I think it'll be helpful for everyone, myself included, to cover just some of the basics in what this paper is talking about. Because it's like, it dives pretty deep. And so one of the things they talk about is phase transition 
the way you have with states of matter, for example. Like, oh, you mean like brain freeze? <laughs> not at all. That is not at all what I mean. Though it's possible that could play some role. Who knows? Who knows what's so, actually at the origin of brain freeze? We may never know. Yeah, it's probably criticality phase transitions. <laughs> yes. What I actually mean is like, well, you're kind of right. Uh, <laughs> like water transitioning to ice, so yeah. gaseous, solid, liquid, plasma. Plasma, yeah. Charlie's my wheelhouse. Yeah. So usually. To transition from one phase to another, you enter, there's some point in between that's this critical state where temperature and pressure are such that you're kind of between these two states. Yeah. I'm kind of remembering from like high school chemistry class learning like if you're boiling water, the temperature will increase, you know, let's say it's at 50 Celsius. It'll increase, increase, increase up to 100. And then once it hits 100, the temperature actually doesn't increase. It's in this critical state where now it's just converting all the water into steam. Yes. And so you're not like adding energy necessarily, but like you're just putting energy into changing the phase instead of heating it up. Yes, yes. And like interesting things start to happen at these points, these uh, these critical points, like water when it reaches freezing. For anyone who listened to our ice disc episode uh, that Charlie covered, the transition point is really interesting because the matters in the state where it could go one direction or another, basically. You're kind of edged either way. Yeah, there's like tons of interesting dynamics in that kind of stuff. And there's like phase diagrams that have like a thousand different, like there's like different types of ice, you know? Yeah. So I can only imagine if you're talking about phases in the brain, it's probably way more complicated. Yeah. And so it's helpful to keep this in mind because a lot of the terminology in the paper is based on this phase transition idea. Okay. And the paper pulls a lot on like statistical dynamics. So it's a lot of statistical analysis of brain signals to try to come up with patterns. So a lot of that's new-ish to me. So cracking into that and the terminology was interesting. Okay. So we, I mean, (laughs) I annoyingly made the brain freeze and (laughs) the water, you know, analogy there. But you were also talking about like grains of sand earlier and collapsing piles of sand and stuff what does that have to do with this okay so the researchers were looking at neural signals in brains i'll get to the brain fees trust me let's okay. get there okay we know roughly that brain activity exists in many different dynamic states like the signals in different parts of your brain are related and changing but there is some there's often patterns okay do you have like an example like you know focused thought versus like listening to music or something so one example is in sleep your brain is in a very synchronous state oh so different parts fire synchronously and they talk about brain oscillations so you can actually measure this a cool example and wait so when you're saying like they're synced up or there's oscillations that's just like the electrical signals the electrical signals so actually so neurons firing oh okay you get the ions traveling in and out of the channel that creates voltages that you can measure wow okay and so one really cool example of this is called the alpha signal so if you put on an an electroencephalography instrument an eeg that's those are the non-invasive caps you put on oh yeah with all the wires like sticking out of it yeah okay so if you you turn it on you're sitting really still your eyes are open and you look at the electrodes that are on the back of your head that roughly correspond to visual cortex Okay. I think if you close your eyes, you'll see this 10 hertz signal appear. 
Really? Yeah. Whoa. So that's an example of synchronization. It's 10 hertz, so there's some sort of oscillation, repeated behavior that's happening. That's crazy. You and your brain your just like does away. that automatically? Yeah. Yeah, oh, that was man. one of the first signals that they discovered like that. That kind of freaks me out. I, I don't know if everyone else at home is doing this too, but I'm like closing my eyes and opening them to be like, can I feel it? I mean, it's there. It's really crazy. Don't we did it for a class. We put it on and you're like, it's super obvious. Yeah, you've like designed like electronics based on this, haven't you? Uh, For a class project, we had to. You can yeah. like use that, detect that signal and use it to switch things on and off. And That's so cool. It's fun. Brains are crazy. <laughs> Brains are crazy. So we know... To that main point, we know that brain activity exists in different dynamic states, uh, and we can understand that from electrophysiological measurements. Okay. So you can measure brains, detect these states, and look at these different patterns that are happening. Okay. So, so this is about like the way that it transitions between those? Yeah. And so in 2003, there was some important research by researchers Beggs and Plens when they observed that local field potentials, so what you measure with an EEG sort of these populations of neurons giving you an electrical signal, there were these LFP neuro neuronal avalanches. And what they observed was power law size distributions. What this means is... Yeah, you got to back up. It, sound, it sounds really complicated, but it's it something does. we can all relate to. It's this idea that small numbers of neurons firing together happens much more frequently than larger populations of neurons firing together which happens much more frequently than like enormous populations of neurons firing together okay so you're, you're so what it the power law is basically that the frequency with which neurons will fire to sorry the frequency with which a group of neurons will fire together is directly related to how many neurons are in the group yeah like you can imagine the they talk about the probability of neurons firing there's a much higher probability that two neurons will fire together instead of like 10 neurons. Okay. More has to happen for the 10 to fire together. Okay. And so when you say it's a power law, what is the actual relationship? Like how much more likely are 10 neurons to fire than 100 neurons? So if you plot it on a log-log scale, you'll get a linear line. So it's uh, decreasing exponential. Okay. Okay. That was some... I feel like the PhD... The, the grad students will understand that, but... Yeah, the mumbo. It's probably mumbo jumbo to a lot of people. But log log is just like you're. Yeah, you're plotting like instead of like a plot that goes like one, two, three, four, five, six. It's a plot that goes like ten, a hundred, a thousand, a ten thousand. Yeah, at evenly spaced intervals. And it and it's used pretty often. It turns out like a lot of things in nature happen on a logarithmic scale. Like right. we hear in logarithms. Yeah, that yeah, is yeah. designed for that. Yeah, and you know, there's this. Um, I just recently heard about this power law for neuronal avalanche activity. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and I believe that works on a log-log, too. So, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you about it some other time. Some other time, yeah. but uh, definitely not on a podcast that's about that. <laughs> yeah. So this power law is actually pretty intuitive, I think, to a lot of people. Quantum Magazine gave a good analogy where if you think about a ski slope in winter, like when snow is just starting... Snow slides will be pretty small, pretty often. Snow's oh. gonna snow compile up on the hill and then fall like a little, a little trickle. Of a snow. little like cookie of snow is gonna fall all the time, and you'll see that all over the hill. Yeah, but an avalanche, yes, which is gonna be, be super huge. uncommon. Yeah, so the probability of these, like a trickle versus an avalanche, you know, trickle is probably more common than an avalanche. But 
you could imagine that there's some particular snowpack where it could go either way. Oh, so like sort of somewhere between the the cookie and the avalanche in that middle ground. Yes. Okay. So you're at this critical point, which is literally called the critical point. Wow. Okay. And at this point, the size and the frequency of the avalanches would be related by this simple exponential relationship. So the small ones, the probability of a small avalanche would be higher, but you could plot it. So you could do you could plot the probability versus the size of the avalanche and it'd be a very nice exponential curve. I thought we already plotted that though. I thought that that was where this all came from. Well, so this this analogy is to emphasize that it only happens at this critical point. If you oh. get away from this critical snowpack, oh. that power law mumbo jumbo goes out the door. I see. So like if you had like just a light dusting of snow on a hill, that it's a meaningless it's a meaningless relationship. The probability of a large avalanche is impossible yeah and if you have like a glacier it's also not really going to happen yeah yeah you know because like that's snow is just kind of staying there and like moving slowly yeah or it's fat flat terrain like yeah nothing's gonna fall but if you have the right conditions like it's the right temperature and the right amount of snow has fallen you know and it's been recent enough then then this power law exists yes okay and so that's that was the hard part for me to understand and how this applies in this paper but that's a critical the critical point is a critical point. If you want to okay. say it, in I like way. that. Okay, so all right, I I understand. I I guess I got thrown off because we talked about the power law before talking about when it applies. I feel like we're we're getting you know off into like the weeds of so many different like discussions here. Yeah, like I'm getting a little confused. But so we started this whole thing with you called this a neuronal avalanche, like an avalanche of neurons, which is why we kicked yes. off the whole discussion about snow avalanches. Yeah. So what is a neuronal avalanche? Like, how does that relate to the whole discussion we just had? So neuronal avalanche, as they measure it and define it, is you're on your recording, you see nothing, you see nothing. Then you see a bunch of neurons firing for a short period of time, and then you see nothing. Oh, so it's like a sudden, like, just big spurt of neuron, of neuron activity. Yeah, burst of neuronal noise you could say it okay except it's not like noise it's you're like, watching you're watching the slope and all is quiet you know bunnies hopping around <laughs> sasquatch is strolling leisurely and then suddenly like big avalanche like chaos and then and then quiet again yeah and chaos is like the perfect word because that's one of the things that people don't understand with the brain is it seems really chaotic and it's like if the brain is just chaos it can't process information and then our brains are useless, which obviously isn't the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In most circumstances. Some of our brains are not useless. <laughs> Some of our brains are not useless. But if our brain was too organized, it wouldn't be able to adapt. Oh, okay. So really what these researchers were getting at is like they can measure these brain avalanches and they can measure the size of them. So the number of neurons that are firing right. during an avalanche and the duration of them. How long these last? So how long is there between the quiet before and the quiet after? How long oh, does the avalanche last? I see. Yeah. Okay. And wait, so how, what does this have to do with like being in that critical point though? Because going back to the avalanche, the snow avalanche analogy, like you said, you need to have the right amount of snow and the right weather. Like what do those conditions look like in the brain? And I would kind of think that the brain would always have to be in critical point Otherwise, like you'd be dead or like you just wouldn't you'd be like, you know, you wouldn't be able to think like, well, 
there's nothing that would there's nothing it's very new to think of the brain in this way oh really so wait this is like a new theory or yeah it's it's pretty new so it was advanced in the like late 1980s and there's this hypothesis rolling around called the critical brain hypothesis i'm just looking it up so i get it right the critical brain hypothesis states that certain biological neural networks work near phase transitions so what it's saying is uh basically the brain's always sort of on the edge of like if there's a spark of neural activity it could just die out and trickle down or it could grow and like continue to be passed on through the brain oh i see and you're always sort of on this critical edge where it could either die out or be passed on okay so it's like so to use the line from the url of the ars technica paper it really is like teetering at the point where like one little like neuron firing could be you know the butterfly effect that then sets off a whole cascade of activity that does something yes or it could just like damp out and do nothing but it's like really close to like it's a flip of the coin whether it's going to do one or the other yes okay and so there was previous research that i like really quickly mentioned earlier in 2003 that thought they had observed this power law in uh, i think rats but there were some issues with that because you actually observe the power law in all sorts of uh, like random systems too. So that wasn't sufficient to say to support this hypothesis of the brain being on this critical point between neurons like trickling down and fading out or avalanching and well between like order and chaos. Like yeah, I mean if it's if you go to the whatever the good side of the transition, I don't know how to like say it. It's like that one neuron is going to fire and cause all this activity that that is useful. And if not, you're just going to have a bunch of these random small groups of neurons firing all over doing nothing, right? Yeah. Okay, so I feel like now we're getting to the crux of this. Like, I thought this whole time that we were talking about a paper that was just, like, I don't know, measuring this critical stuff and, like, yeah, criticality. But it sounds like this is, like, almost seminal work, you know? I mean, the seminal work came from the 80s, but... This is still like not a proven hypothesis and and this is a big step. It's one of those papers that starts ask, like bringing up even more questions than it answers, which is good. Yeah, because uh, there was another group that set some like pretty stringent theoretical conditions to say whether a system is critical or not. Oh, OK. And this paper it, like defines the whole that. point of this paper is to show look, we met the conditions of the previous paper from 2003, and we now meet your more stringent condi- conditions. Oh. So this su- then supports this critical brain hypothesis. And there are shortcomings in the research, which they admit in like number of test subjects and things like that. But it's like, it's a pretty interesting finding. Oh, okay. So I... Okay, this is this is getting like super interesting and crazy, but, but here we are like 30 minutes in and I thought we'd been talking about the paper this whole time, but we've just been on background, basically. Like, this is like, I mean, context and key results. Yeah. Yeah. So, because I'm now realizing like, oh, well, we this were like talking the about... abstract. <laughs> yeah. Like, we were talking about like rats at the beginning, and we haven't talked about any of the experimental stuff that they did in this paper. Now and, the like, method... what they specifically contributed here. Yeah. And uh, maybe I just took you on the weird journey that my brain had to go through <laughs> to actually understand this, the weird avalanche. The avalanche, Yeah. I brought you, I pulled you under 10 feet of snow um, yeah. to get here. But I think now I the actual experiments and analysis will make more sense. 
Okay, good. All right, well, I'm glad that we did that. Should have started this episode with a with like a warning to like bring your avalanche gear. Don't forget your beacon. <laughs> yeah, you got your backpack. shovel, <laughs> your probe. Yeah, yeah. So then, all right, this paper. So what, what did was this like paper their do? experiment? Yeah, what so did they do? What did they do? So what this paper did was they worked with rats that had implanted electrodes in their brain, the primary visual cortex. They anesthetized the rats. So they put them to sleep using a very specific drug that would put them into the state where there was both synchronous and asynchronous behavior. I told, I mentioned earlier, like often when you're sleeping, there's a lot of synchronous beha- behavior. Mm-hmm. But when you're awake, it's a little more asynchronous. Mm-hmm. Some people think that's because you're constantly adapting to uh, external stimuli. It's too much stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, way too much. So, so they were looking at the rats in that case. They then looked at the spiking activity and they were trying to look at how much variation was occurring across the different neurons that they were measuring. And they used this as a measure of how strongly synchronized the neurons were. Okay, so the rats are asleep. They're drugged out. Drugged to out. induce like a specific activity in the brain. Yep. And then they take a measurement, which will, which is just a measure of how synchronized the activity is. Yes, called the coefficient of variation. So okay. a high coefficient of variation represents more synchronicity. Okay. That's a word, right? Yeah, I think that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, a lower coefficient of variation represents less synchronicity. Okay. And so the measure of synchronicity, like more synchronous means... Uh, they're on they're in a certain phase and less synchronous means they're in a different phase or like how how does the synchronicity correspond to a phase transition how does that correspond to a phase transition yeah like why is it important for them to measure how synchronous their brain activity is what does that tell them in relation to this criticality thing i'm going to tell you in one second (laughs) okay james is furiously going over the paper scrolling through the 300 pages (laughs) (laughs) sad thing is well not the sad thing. I mean, it's a five. It's a six-page paper. Oh man, one page is all reference. Two pages are references. Basically. Yeah, here's so here's really what dense. you learn. Like your first year in grad school, you get a, you get given a paper to read, and it's twenty pages, and you're like, oh no. And then by your third year, you get given a page, a paper that's four pages, and you're like, oh my god, no, this is going to be impossible to understand. Because <laughs> you're like, there's no. It took them years, years yeah. of work. There's your real power law. Is longer papers are easier to read. Yes. Okay. I had a little brain lapse there. Last that was a trickle. That was yeah, a trickle you were, the avalanche. Uh-huh. All chaos up there. So the coefficient of variation represents the avalanche. It represents uh how big this avalanche is and how long the avalanche lasts. Okay. So like a higher coefficient means like a more avalanche avalanche. Yes. Okay. And the- an avalanche is representative of the phase transition. Yeah, between the brain activity dying out or the brain activity at like snowballing and becoming. Okay, so this so measuring the synchronicity and getting that coefficient basically tells them when a phase transition is happening and how and how strong it is and how likely it is. Oh, how likely it is. How likely you are to either get the small trickle or the big avalanche. Oh, I see. I see. I see. And, and the likeliness of it is important because that's like when the brain is, you know, on fire, like in a, in a good way. That's when the brain's like, it's doing its thing well, when it's likely to get this avalanche. It's hard to say. We still don't really know what it means. Oh, okay. So that's kind of like beyond the scope. This is more just saying saying that it's, the criticality thing happens. Like we're, to, we're trying to prove that. 
yeah it's fun to joke about on the podcast like you know like oh your brain's just trickling there like missing the avalanche <laughs> but like truthfully this is still like very much unknown maybe um, trickling is a good thing it could be but it could be bad like epilepsy i think often is sort of the brain gets stuck in these oscillatory patterns it gets like pushed oh. off into this into this weird uh state that it can't get out of like avalanches being triggered that are not supposed to be or like or not being triggered that are supposed to be yeah uh, yeah i'm not sure if it the brain becomes synchronized or desynchronized but what if you look at like brain measurements of someone uh during a seizure seizure you just see like tons of random firing like the really it's just firing way too much wow oh man that's scary yeah so i mean there's a lot there's a lot to be unlocked still yeah well i take back my jokes about trickling now (laughs) i mean you know maybe you don't know (laughs) i don't know (laughs) you know it's a hard this is a really hard paper to talk about on the podcast even though it's really interesting because basically what they do then they have this measurement and they do some statistical analysis where they compare they basically plot the average duration of the avalanche the neuronal avalanche versus the average size of the avalanche and you get a very nice straight line if you plot it on a lot logarithmic scale okay so they basically just proved that that power law holds they proved in these the power law holds and they meet the more stringent condition that someone has met uh brought up before ultimately supporting this hypothesis of the critical brain region gotcha so okay so let me get this timeline out late 80s someone comes out and they're like yeah, critical brain hypothesis. We think this might be a thing. People yes. do a bunch of experiments. In 03, some group shows that this power law applies in the brain. But then they say, that doesn't really mean much because this applies to lots of random systems. Yes. Somewhere after that, this group says, yeah, cool, you show the power law. But actually, in the brain, there's way more stringent conditions on this. Like, you can't just say that the power law applies here because, you know, yeah, and actually, that's was, easy to meet. What was cool about that work was like, they apply that to many different systems. Oh, it's gotcha. sort of like a universal fact about these critical systems. Gotcha. Okay. And so they were like, you know, you can't prove the critical brain hypothesis just with the power law thing. So then this paper now is saying like, look, even with these specific requirements that have to be met for the brain to follow this, it works. Yes. Thereby like potentially proving the critical brain hypothesis advancing the critical brain hypothesis i'm getting i'm getting too uh excited about this field that i didn't know existed 45 (laughs) minutes ago (laughs) i'm probably being a little too academic too uh in like hedging all the things that they're saying but Uh, you're a true scientist james and i appreciate that can't commit to anything (laughs) yeah commit to anything um so you know the main takeaway from this paper is that it supports this scenario uh i'm actually gonna i'm just gonna quote the paper okay It supports a scenario in which the transition governing brain dynamics is not between absorbing and active phases, so like trickling and avalanching, but rather between active and oscillating phases. So that's that was like a key thing. Before it was like people would think about the brain either being uh, like not active or active, on or off, and it's more. In reality, it's always active. It's always doing something, right? I mean, yeah, and so you can look at it more like between. Is it active or oscillating? And those are the phases that they're talking about with this, CV, this uh, coefficient of variation major, uh, metric. Okay. And that's, that's, a, like, that's a really critical insight because that's what people had messed up before. Okay. I, I, feel like we're, I feel like we're in such a good spot where we could just come right out of this and be like, well, that's our show. 
and I don't think anyone would I don't think anyone would be dissatisfied. But I feel like I still don't understand what is the actual transition that we're talking about here. How do we transition from active to oscillating? Like you said, like like, liquid and gaseous. Yeah, like you said, when if you put an EEG on my head, (laughs) did I? Is that wrong terminology? No, 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 that's right. You put an EEG on my head, and you're measuring my brain, and it's doing all these weird things. I close my eyes, and suddenly you get this oscillating behavior. Yeah. If you're measuring my visual cortex, there's a transition there from whatever it was doing before to when it oscillated. Yes. That's the phase transition we're talking about, right? So there's, st- yeah, you're going from an still an active state yeah. to an oscillatory state. Right. So like the avalanche is what causes that transition? I don't understand that. The avalanche represents synchronous neuronal behavior. Okay. So really it's that. The avalanche is that oscillation. Oh, so. The, ma- the magnitude of that avalanche corresponds to like these neurons firing and like turning on and off together okay so it's more that the fact that avalanches can happen is a phase like that's a phase meaning like there's enough snow on the slope yeah yeah whereas like when my eyes are open and it's not there's no oscillatory behavior there's none of these big avalanches happening yeah maybe one way to think about it is like in an avalanche you have a bunch of small snow flakes all falling together Oh, and in the trickle, it's like you just have one falling or two, like one or, or they're two kind of going falling. all over yeah. the place. Like, yeah, they're kind of falling from each other randomly. OK, so my eyes are open and there's just snow kind of blowing around. Like I it, close my eyes and the avalanche happens. If you're talking about the alpha wave. Yeah. Yeah. The oscillatory behavior. Yeah. OK, so that was like a key. That was a key insight, like looking at active this transition between active and oscillatory. So the power law is then saying like you could have these like big oscillatory effects either in size or in duration, but the probability is very low. Yeah. Okay. Or which is why or if it's really big, the size of like the number of neurons will be very small. If it's very long, the population size will be small or vice versa. Okay. And does that sort of explain why like your brain is very active? I mean, that it's way more likely that it's going to be doing tons of small little like random stuff. Maybe. It's very, it's very, it's much less likely that you're going to dip into this oscillatory behavior that really is characteristic of like quote unquote inactivity. I mean, that's, it's unknown. I, I can't say to know, and I don't think people really understand. Damn it, James, stop hedging your bets and just give me an answer. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, I wish you were more cocky, James. <laughs> I would say that's your biggest flaw. <laughs> Just not spreading mistruths. Yeah, you're too honest. I know. I'm, I'm starting the, the honest news trend of <laughs> just saying we don't know. <laughs> Real news as opposed to fake news. <laughs> Something happened today uh, in South America. I'm not sure what, though. <laughs> yeah. um, an avalanche. An avalanche mm-hmm. of some sort. Yes. <laughs> so just to take this one step further, they wanted to see how... Basically, they end up, they plot their, they plot the data and you get a very straight line, which is interesting, but yeah. they want to see how, ex- how applicable these results are to other animals. Like, cause they tested a specific rat with a specific type of anesthesia. So they used publicly available data from freely moving mice, turtles, macaque monkeys, and other rats. Hmm. And they found the same behavior from the brain 
data in all of them from all those different animals and those are all like good stand-ins for human brains right yeah like you can see this plot they all plot together on the same line wow that's amazing and brains are crazy man brains are crazy so that like you know the next big takeaway from this paper is like maybe there's some universal like the way that neurons way that interact neurons are governed yeah. yeah between like between very different species turtles, monkeys it's like we're all the same man we all come from like mother earth <laughs> <laughs> getting deep man past that bro <laughs> too much time in joshua tree <laughs> uh joking aside though that is actually crazy and yeah. i mean it seems like at that point like it's obvious like this obviously applies to humans too <laughs> again i know you're gonna hedge your bets and say like well we need well, to do actually, the experiment <laughs> No, so I had an interesting conversation with someone about human brains and how we study like rat brains and monkey brains to understand the human brain Mm -hmm. and uh, very different brains, obviously. But like even on like a neuroscience level, he was saying like this guy's one of the brain surgeons who works at UW. So I trust his. Oh, just, you know, rocket scientist and a brain surgeon getting coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was it was really interesting because he was like many times there are certain findings he he cited one or two specific examples that I forget, but like human brains respond opposite to how a rat brain responds. Really? But oftentimes we use them as an analog and say, oh, we tested this in rats. This will probably happen in humans. Yeah. Like I, I heard this one study where um, they found that rats were very likely to walk on subway tracks where humans were very <laughs> unlikely to walk on subway tracks. It's obviously It's kind of this rooted, crazy dichotomy. Rooted in neuroscience. Yeah. They still haven't been able to explain that one. (laughs) No. (laughs) That sounds like one of those things that gets published. Like an Ig Nobel Prize or whatever. Let's it go through and then you're like, hold on a second. Hold up. Yeah. And then you're like, the peer review process is broken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like if I had to bet my lunch money on it, I would say probably the same thing happens in human brains. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this finding like resonates with me. I feel like my brain gets it you know my brain is like it's satisfying because like you know your brain it knows all the secrets even if you don't as a person you know yeah. and so like some brains know more secrets than you others. hear something that is that seems really true and your brain's giving you these little hints like yeah that's it that's like it. you're getting closer <laughs> they're just giving you a little nugget yeah dude this feels too much like Westworld. yeah let's watch that we're trying to we're stuck in the maze yeah it doesn't seem like anything to me <laughs> <laughs> so uh i mean of all the papers we've done i think i butchered this one but um that's it was right. tough and you know every every couple of weeks we need a good butchering yeah people need their people need their science meat butchered so solid academic humbling yeah i mean here's the thing is it's still valuable because a i learned a crap load and so did anyone listening and b it's obvious that by just reading the news article, it's really impossible to actually like just really get what's going on here, you know? I mean, you read the paper itself and some of the old papers on it, and it's, you still don't really get it very well, you know? <laughs> At least that's how it comes off when I explain it. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. I no, mean, no. like, it's one of those things where the deeper you dive in, the more the more complicated it gets, you know? Like, the less you know. Yeah, it brings up a lot of questions. Yeah. It brings so up I, way more questions. I think in that sense, like you've done the science justice like you've absolutely given me the impression that this is crazy new territory and like could potentially be still studied 
for 50 more years, you know, and still not be totally answered. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited to see what comes from this. I think this is a paper that will probably get a lot of citations going forward. Oh, yeah. And citation number one, Paper Boys podcast. Yes, number one. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and when I was reading the popular news articles, I thought they were confusing. And then I just realized like it's a very complicated subject to actually. Yeah. You know, you, you got to give some slack to the reporters, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when the news article itself is about just as long as the actual paper itself. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And then you're like, there's something something's missing. Yeah, and I read that Ars Technica paper, and uh, I thought it gave a really good like history on this critical brain problem. Yeah, and it gave some good analogies, but but yeah, you know, now just hearing about it, it's like I can see why they can't really dive into it too far. Yeah, it's tough, but it's interesting. And I can brain is a crazy place. I can also see why like some of the only mainstream news that covered it was like Quanta magazine, which has some of the most like I don't know science dense articles that i've seen yeah i was really impressed actually i mean just skimming through the article that they published yeah and I, let's the other resources. i guess i can go ahead and you know full endorsement quantum magazine i actually um i got a book for christmas from my future father-in-law and it's like a series of all these articles from quantum magazine and i was like oh okay cool like science news stuff and you read them and you're like oh my god these are like they're like essays you know it's not just yeah. like science news it's like philosophical like what science means to us and they're yeah they're really interesting yeah so well i i mean this was actually the first time i, I say they are really interesting this is the first article i actually read from quantum magazine so your recommendation i'm gonna check them out yeah and anyone listening and wow. we are in no way affiliated with quantum magazine <laughs> well you know charlie sometimes when i need my science news i just uh <laughs> I sit down Pour a hot cup of coffee and pull up Quanta magazine. Yeah. Um, for the low price of only nine ninety nine. dollars <laughs> uh, Okay, cool. Well, thank you for bringing that in. And thank you to John Darnall for sending it our way. Hopefully we didn't just like confuse you even more than you were when you first read it. But Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this one for a long time. Yeah, I think I am too. Lots it's of a, avalanches will be going through my brain on this one. Lots of avalanches. I feel like I mean, this article was an avalanche just ran train on my brain. <laughs> Well, it's one of those things <laughs> that uh, we've talked about it at least 10 times in other episodes, but it's like we still don't know how the brain works and how conscious thought arises. And every little fundamental step like this that goes an in inches towards that is really interesting. And the fact that there might be a universal law for how neurons operate is like... That's cool. That's a cool discovery. Cool territory. Yeah. So thank you everyone for bearing with us as we just trudged logged through that so. yeah and you know since we did such a great job selling how interesting this article is to read go check it out on our website paperboyspodcast.com the the journal paper will be posted there but we'll also we'll have the ars technical one up there which is actually very easy to understand and uh it, like we said gives a really good overview of kind of the whole brain criticality problem yeah absolutely and again if you're not following us yet please do check us out on Instagram and Twitter just to stay up to date on the latest Paper Boys news. We always post about new episodes and also post other interesting findings that we see that we can't always get around to. There's so much science news out there. It's hard to do an episode on everything. If you do see something interesting that particularly tickles your fancy, let us know and we'll try to include it in. Yeah, and another shameless plug for our Patreon, patreon.com slash paperboyspod. We're doing bonus episodes every month, and you get a free sticker for becoming a patron. 
and uh, a cute little handwritten note from us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and you know the the entry level tier is pie dollars, three dollars fourteen cents. That's you know a cup of coffee. Think of it like you're buying me and James a cup of coffee for us to share. <laughs> And we're gonna go to the coffee shop with you and tell you about a cool like old historical paper or like something really fun you know funny paper that's come up who wouldn't want their own science geeks to follow them around yeah exactly and and, and we love coffee too so <laughs> even even imaginative coffee well thanks so much for listening please join us next week for another exciting edition in paper boys thanks for listening